This is episode two of The Order of Death. It's part of an ongoing series. If you'd like to hear episode one, just back up a little bit in the feed and you'll find it there. My brothers, my sisters, from the mist-shrouded, forested valleys and mountains of the Pacific Northwest, I bring you a message of solidarity, a call to action, and a demand for adherence to duty as members of the vanguard of an Aryan resurgence and ultimately total Aryan victory. The signs of awakening are sprouting up across the Northwest, and no more so than amongst the two-fisted farmers and ranchers, a class of our people who have been hit especially hard by the filthy lying Jews and their parasitical usury system. From the beginning of this nation to the present, the yeoman farmer has been a... This is a recording of a man named Robert Matthews speaking to a gathering of white supremacists in Arlington, Virginia at the National Alliance Convention in early September 1983. How I dream of a new poem, a poem for today. Out of the valleys, out of the fields, pour the Aryan yeoman horde, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Thence the Aryan farmers came and removed the Jew forever forever from this world. Only a few weeks later, he gave a similar speech to a group of men gathered in the woods a couple of hours north of Spokane, Washington. It is less than a year before Allenberg's murder. The men assembled here are members of the Aryan Nations, the Ku Klux Klan, White Aryan Resistance, the National Alliance, and other white supremacist groups. And the speech? Well, by that point, it had become more of an oath. The men were brought together by Robert Matthews, and they are taking this oath to become part of a new, unified group, the Silent Brotherhood, also known as the Order. How the weaselly little city-dwelling Jew fears and suspicions the Aryan farmer. What a contrast, what a contrast in mind and body between the two. I think that deep within the breast of our Aryan yeomanry lies a long, dormant seed, the seed of a racial awakening the seed of resurgence, the seed of anger, and the seed of the will to act. We must radicalize the American yeomanry. Matthews had a very specific agenda in mind with the Silent Brotherhood, including robbery, stockpiling weapons and ammunition, assassinations, bombings, and eventually overthrowing the government in order to lay the foundation for a white Christian ethnostate. The fate of every last white Man, woman, and child on this planet lie squarely on the shoulders of us here in this room today. Matthews asked his recruits to hereby invoke the blood covenant and declare that we are in a full state of war and will not lay down our weapons until we have driven our enemy into the sea and reclaimed the land that was promised. In one body, we have broken the chains of Jewish thought. Onward we will go, onward to the stars, high above the mud, the mud of yellow, black, and brown. So kinsman, duty calls. The future is now. So stand up like men and drive the enemy into the sea. Stand up like men and swear a sacred oath upon the green graves of our sires that you will reclaim what our forefathers discovered explored, conquered, settled, built, and died for. Stand up like men and reclaim our soil. 
Kinsmen, arise. This group would go on to commit a string of crimes across the western half of the country over the next four years, including the assassination of Denver talk radio host Alan Berg. In this episode, we will explore the group behind Allen Berg's murder and the violent plans of a group of white supremacist terrorists whose legacy is still haunting us today. I'm Shannon Geis. And I'm Josh Madison. And you're listening to The Order of Death. Robert Matthews, the leader of the Silent Brotherhood, or The Order, grew up in Arizona in the 1960s, and his slide towards white supremacy began early. When Robert was just a kid, flipping through the Arizona Republic, his local newspaper, he came across a supplement claiming that communists had infiltrated the U.S. government. The supplement was paid for by the John Birch Society, a far-right organization supporting anti-communism and limited government. The John Birch Society was formed in the late 1950s. It gained some traction in the 1960s and was at its height in 1964 when Barry Goldwater, Republican senator from Arizona, was challenging Lyndon B. Johnson for president. Goldwater's campaign was heavily influenced by the Birchers, as the members of the society were called. And some argue that the John Birch Society helped get Goldwater nominated. Matthews was intrigued by what he read and mailed in a coupon included with the supplement to receive more literature from the organization. He eventually became a Bircher himself, joining the Phoenix chapter of the Society when he was about 12 years old. Matthew's father was not supportive of the direction young Robert was taking, but his mother had encouraged him to get into politics, so that's what he did. Although eventually his mother also had become very concerned about his political activities. As Matthews got older, his belief became more and more conservative. He got involved in anti-tax activism, And from there, he became the leader of a group called the Sons of Liberty. The group was an underground militia movement made up mostly of Mormons and survivalists that believed the American government was being infiltrated by communists. They ran paramilitary drills in the desert and were ready to use violence to take the country back from the communists they claimed had taken over. Then one of Matthew's friends in the Sons of Liberty, Greg Thorpe, got caught up in a domestic dispute and killed his wife and another couple before shooting himself in the head. The murders greatly upset Matthews, and the Sons of Liberty floundered. After a few months, a new acquaintance convinced him to restart the Sons of Liberty, but by this point he was under close surveillance by federal agents due to being identified in a news video where... Masked and armed, he laid out the Sons of Liberty's vaguely terroristic plans and ideology to a reporter. 
But it didn't end up being political activities that got Matthews in trouble with the law for the first time. It was that time-honored crime of tax evasion. He was 20 years old, unmarried, and claiming 10 dependents on his W-4 in order to avoid any withholding from his paycheck. He was quickly arrested, but eventually only sentenced to six months probation. While he was serving his probation, he started making plans to move out of Arizona. He was disgusted with his friends, and he wanted a fresh start elsewhere. That violent episode, murder-suicide, just completely took Bob. It just put him in a state of shock. And he resolved that after his period of uh, probation was over, he was going to get out of Phoenix. That's what took him to the Pacific Northwest. He and a buddy got in a car, did a road trip. They ended up in Medellin Falls, and he just fell in love with the place. It sort of appealed to his Scottish background. It reminded him of what he imagined the Scottish Highlands looked like. That's Kevin Flynn, a former reporter for the Rocky Mountain News and a current Denver City Councilman who wrote a book about Matthews and the Order called The Silent Brotherhood. After Matthews moved to Washington State, he tried to live a normal life. And when you look at Bob's early life, and then the life he started to establish in Medellin Falls before he got drawn back in, you'd see the beginnings of a classic American success story. Hardworking young man, uh, working several jobs, uh, raising a small family, buying property, raising cattle. And had he not gone off to this fringe, what could he have accomplished with his life? He wrote letters to his family about wanting to get out of the white supremacist movement and promised them that he was not getting back into it. At one point, he invited his parents to move from Arizona and join him in the Pacific Northwest, which they agreed to do as long as he was no longer involved with all these crazy people, as his father put it. He even spoke with the FBI agents that he had interacted with in Phoenix, telling them he was getting out of the movement. And for a while, it seemed like he really did. Now, it would be nice if there was an inciting incident we could point to and say this, this is what brought Matthews back to the white supremacist ideology. But there isn't an obvious moment. Instead, there seems to be a few smaller factors. He still had friends who were involved in the white supremacist movements, and this led the FBI to interview him again, which he resented. And he kept reading fringe literature that fed his fascination with history and conspiracy theory. But really, one of the main things that led Matthews to Richard Butler and the Aryan Nations compound was that simplest of human emotions, loneliness and isolation. Medellin Falls, where Matthews was building his home and farm, is very close to Canada, and the winters there could be long and cold. So it was natural for him to seek out friends, friends who shared the same ideas he had. And eventually, he started going to Aryan Nations events just over the border in Hayden Lake, Idaho, on a regular basis. Aryan Nations was a white supremacist organization started by a man named Richard Butler. Their belief system was closely aligned with something called Christian identity, which itself is based on the idea that only people with Aryan blood are the real Israelites, and therefore real Christians. The end result of this belief is that there will be a kingdom of heaven on earth for whites, and people who are not of European descent will either be removed, enslaved, or eradicated. Beyond this belief system, the group differed from other racist organizations like the various KKK factions in a few key ways. Mark Pitt-Cabbage, a senior research fellow with the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism, 
has more. For you know, most of the history of the United States, if you would talk to some sort of white supremacist leader, like let's say a Klan leader in the 1940s or 1950s, um, and said, you know, what what do you stand for? What does white supremacy mean to you? Uh, what are you fighting for? They would say, we are fighting to maintain the dominance of the white race in America. Um, and that explains their ideology and their tactics. But what happened starting in the 1950s and continuing through the 1960s was that white supremacists lost the civil rights battle. And their, their attempts to um, fight uh, desegregation in the South and de facto desegregation elsewhere. And they saw the government turn against them, the courts turn against them, uh, society turn against them, and sort of found themselves on the losing end of this struggle. And as a result, white supremacist ideology began to change to accommodate those realities. This was a slow process, but over time, white supremacists increasingly um, said, we're not fighting to maintain the dominance of the white race in America. We are fighting to prevent the extinction of the white race. They became convinced that the white race itself was doomed to extinction, by a, doomed by a rising tide of color controlled and manipulated by the Jews, and that if whites didn't do something, if they didn't act out, if they didn't do whatever it took, the white race itself was going to go extinct. Today, white supremacists often use the phrase white genocide to describe that. In the early 1980s, when the order was active, that phrase um, hadn't emerged yet, but the concept was pretty clear. And white supremacists had, uh, you know, a number of different white supremacists had a number of different, quote unquote, solutions, you know, how to deal with this, how to, quote unquote, save the white race. Some wanted a white revolution, some wanted a race war. Uh, some were separatists. They wanted to... Uh, uh, break away from the United States um, and form a whites-only society and felt that that would preserve the white race. And Robert Matthews, following um, the direction of uh, uh, Richard Butler, the head of Aryan Nations, who was an early proponent of this sort of white separatism, um, he argued for uh, creating a white homeland in the Pacific Northwest, and that is what would save the white race. So in addition to hanging around the Aryan nations, around this time, Matthews was introduced to a book called The Turner Diaries by William Pierce. Here's Kevin Flynn. Yeah, The Turner Diaries was written by William Pierce under an assumed name, uh, but he acknowledges the authorship, uh, or acknowledged he's, he's passed away. And he, but William Pierce took over a group called the National Alliance in Arlington, Virginia. And he wrote the Turner Diaries, which is a fiction, a fictional account written from the point of view of a, of a foot soldier in a, in a white uh, nationalist army that uh, mounts a campaign of terrorism and sabotage and murder um, in the United States, mostly against the federal government. And it's written from the point of view of Earl Turner, the foot soldier who dies in a suicide attack on the FBI headquarters uh, in Washington with a nuclear device. And it just became extremely popular in the white nationalist movement. And uh, it serves as a, the federal, the federal prosecutors love to say it served as a blueprint for the order, or it served as a blueprint for Tim McVeigh. 
If you read the Turner Diaries, which I have, it's not a blueprint, it's just a narrative story. I mean, there's nothing in there that says, do this and then you do that, blah, blah, blah. It's just, it's pure inspiration material. And the book's author, William Pierce? Well, he was a major figure in the white separatist movement, but he always managed to stay out of the fray. Mark Pitkavich explains. His, his Nazis were not uh, goose-stepping, uniformed Nazis. He preferred people in business suits. He preferred well-educated people. He himself was a college professor. Uh, and he was intelligent, articulate, and for several decades was one of the most influential white supremacist leaders in the United States. He was also very hardcore, and, and he did not want to risk his group or his position um, by engaging in violence himself. He would often say, well, certainly I support you know violence, just not right now. But through his propaganda, particularly through the Turner Diaries, you know, he actually nevertheless encouraged uh, people to engage in acts of violence. The Turner Diaries was, and still is, very popular within the white nationalist movement. Timothy McVeigh actually sold the book out of his car when he was at Waco, Texas, watching the siege of the Branch Davidian compound. And of course, McVeigh took some inspiration from the book as well when he bombed the federal building in Oklahoma City. So after Robert Matthews read the Turner Diaries, he committed himself to creating a group to carry out William Pierce's vision, the Silent Brotherhood. Matthews attended the Aryan World Congress and announced his intentions. He does kind of become the, the, the bell of the ball that year. Um, he is fated by various people, uh, and he, uh, his idea finds resonance, and he has several people from uh, across the organizations uh, that I came to the Congress that express interest in being part of the order. Um, so uh, he, in 1983, he does, the, he does uh, officially start the order. Um, they're called the, uh, they call themselves the Silent Brotherhood or the Bruders Schweigen. Uh, they adopt that name from a particularly brutal uh, SS regiment. That's Justin Kirkland, a local Denver history buff who has studied right-wing movements in America. The order's stated goal was to establish what they called the White American Bastion. They wanted the states of Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Oregon, and Washington to separate from the United States and become a whites-only nation. Kevin Flynn. Well, Bob certainly thought that the Pacific Northwest was hospitable to his uh, way of thinking. And there probably, uh, there probably are a, a large number of people who are. After all, that's where the Aryan Nations was located. Uh, that's one of the reasons Bob went up there was he felt that it would be hospitable because it was in part of the country that didn't have uh, a high percentage of minority population. Uh, it just simply the demographics uh, attracted him. Matthews came up with a five-step plan to achieve his goals. Step one, form the group. Step two, set goals. Step three, procure funds through rubbing banks and armored trucks. Step four, assassinate political and race enemies. Step five, form a guerrilla nation. The order quickly gained traction, and at the height of things, there were nearly four dozen people who eventually joined the group. In addition to Matthews, some of the key players were Thomas Martinez, he pronounced it Martinez in order to sound less Hispanic, Gary Yarborough, Richard Scutari, David Lane, Bruce Pierce, and Gene Craig. Now, it isn't necessary that you remember those names, but all of them would play major roles in the crimes that followed. 
Most of these people would have been considered law-abiding citizens up to this point. Kevin Flynn talks about his surprise at their radicalization. The most fascinating thing that Gary and I discovered in researching each individual was that they came from all over. We have a, a list of the characters in the book because there were so many. We, we tracked about 42 individuals who had joined the gang. And what blew us away was the fact that most of them, with maybe only two or three exceptions, most of them were fine, upstanding, law-abiding uh, citizens until they met Bob Matthews. And that was the, that was the ingredient, that was the, uh, the activating ingredient in this pool of people that radicalized them. There were only, I can only think of three people who had a criminal record out of those 42. And it was just amazing to us how easy it was in the atmosphere of the day uh, with the economy of the times, with farms going under and you know coming out of recessions, that uh, how easy it was for people just to slip almost unwittingly, unknowingly into carrying AR-15s and sticking up armored cars on the side of the highway and robbing, uh, robbing pornographic video stores and counterfeiting. And it's almost like boiling the frog uh, with most of these folks. You get, you reel them in, you, you hook them with the bait, and then you reel them in. And suddenly, uh, when, you, when you see the testimony of a lot of these people, suddenly they find themselves doing things that in their, you know, a, a year earlier they couldn't even have imagined doing. And frankly, we found that pretty frightening. The order did try legitimate work at first. They took on a logging contract. But the work was difficult, and the pay was too low to finance their plans, so they moved on to more criminal activity. They started small, robbing a pornographic video store in Seattle. They targeted this porn shop because they considered it a victimless crime. They'd be funding their endeavors and destroying an immoral business at the same time. But they got less than $300 from that job. Justin Kirkland again. The first initial uh, uh, robbery didn't net them a whole lot of money. However, uh, kind of in a sort of an act of serendipity, uh, Robert J. Matthews decides that he's going to attempt an individual bank robbery outside of the group, uh, which he does. So in 1983, um, he passes a note to a teller, shows up in a bank unarmed, passes a note to a teller saying that's a robbery, and walks out a couple minutes later with $26,000 and realizes, you know, this is where the money is at. The group quickly started robbing more banks to build up their reserves, and also started trying to counterfeit money as well. They considered counterfeiting a crime with more than one goal. First, they could make money off of the currency, but the secondary goal was that by introducing fake money into circulation, they would also devalue real currency, thereby destabilizing the U.S. government. Counterfeiting is tough to do well and risky to pull off, but we'll get back to that later. It's around this time that Bob Matthews decides to dive right into step four of his five-step plan, assassinate political and race enemies. Now, because most of the members of the order were generally law-abiding before joining the order, the assassination part of the plan was pretty controversial. Many believed the nation was in trouble, but they didn't actually want to shoot and kill people. Matthews overruled them, though, and they went ahead with the plan. Their first assassination target? Allen Berg the controversial Denver radio host. 
So how did Allen Berg get on their radar? The list of potential assassination targets Matthews drew up had much more prominent Jewish and minority figures on it. People like Henry Kissinger, Norman Lear, Morris Dees from the Southern Poverty Law Center, and others. Berg's reach on the radio was mostly in Denver and some surrounding markets. How did Bob Matthews get wind of him from all the way up in Medellin Falls, Washington? It all stems from an article in a small newspaper called the Primrose and Cattlemen's Gazette out of Fort Lupton, Colorado, a small town north of Denver. The paper was run by a man named Rick Elliott. Among other racist, anti-Semitic, and anti-government articles, he published a feature in the paper by Francis Farrell outlining the protocols of the elders of Zion. Robert Matthews actually talks about the Primrose in that speech we mentioned earlier. The same gentleman also gave me copies of the Primrose and Cattlemen's Gazette, published in Fort Lupton, Colorado. This is an excellent little rural newspaper with a considerable circulation, which is geared towards the needs and interests of the farmer and rancher. What's interesting about this newspaper, in this issue, is an excellent little article on the Protocols of Zion. This issue here is a full-page advertisement for a very anti-Jewish, pro-white, racialist organization. The Jews are coming down hard in this brave little newspaper like chickens on a June bug. And it appears that it might eventually fold up, but the seeds have been sown. Now, you might be wondering what the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is. In a sense, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is the grandfather of all modern anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. It originated in Russia in the early 20th century, and it describes a Jewish plan for global domination. It was completely fabricated, but by the time the Protocols were debunked, it was far too late. It had spread around the globe, seemingly unchecked. Henry Ford printed them in his newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, and of course the Nazis used them as the basis for much of their anti-Jewish propaganda. But even after World War II, the protocols were still widely available and believed. So it's not that surprising to find excerpts reprinted in this small-town newspaper. Though there was quite a backlash to the Primrose and Cattlemen's Gazette printing it, many in the community were upset about it. The Marine Corps were one of the newspaper's biggest advertisers. So some people in the community contacted their U.S. representative, Pat Schroeder, who sat on the House Armed Services Committee. She got the Marines to pull their ads. Allenberg had the newspaper's publisher, Rick Elliott, on his show under the pretense of sticking up for his First Amendment rights. But... Once he got him on the air, though, it was, uh, yes, I support your right to, to print whatever hateful drivel and slop and lies you want it. And the quotes are actually from the transcript. Those are the actual words that were spoken on the radio show. With all this backlash, the newspaper ended up closing. David Lane, a Klansman from Denver who was also a member of the Order, worked at the paper and lost his job because of it. There's something else, too. Let me play you a clip we heard in our first episode. It's Alan Berg arguing with some guys on his show. Let me say this. Uh, I have been on programs like this many, many times before, and I've run into fellows like you that interrupt and try to stop. Now, Jack, you have barely been interrupted so far, Jack, so don't give me that. Don't give me that garbage. You haven't been interrupted at all, man. Let me get this across, fellas. Go ahead, Jack. Let me get this across to you now. Yeah. I, I am not going to put up on any discourtesy. I'll be courteous to you as long as you're courteous to me. 
but I don't want any of this breaking in and stopping me when I'm trying to give a thought. Jack, well, I think it's appropriate. Hold it. One second, Jack. You're on my show, and as long as you're on my show, you'll follow my rules. You don't make up the rules. Hold it, Jack. You don't make up the rules on my show. You want to end it right here? Hey, Jack, go ahead. Both of you hang up, cowards. Go bail out right now. That's it. You saw it right there. That's it. These guys are going to come on this show and make up the rules. Not in my lifetime. No way. There was nothing rude in the initiation of what I did there. Are you still there, Pastor Peters? Pastor Peters, are you there? No, he hung up too. Okay, that's it, folks. All I can say is if they think they're going to come on the air here and throw their anti-Semitic garbage uninterrupted without any challenge, that ain't the way I do business. Our number, 861-TALK, 861-8255. We'll come back on KOA. Berg spent most of that episode of his show arguing with two men, Jack Moore and Pete Peters. Jack Moore was a white supremacist leader and Christian identity adherent. And Pete Peters? He was a preacher in a white supremacist church based out of LaPorte, Colorado. Some of the members of the order were Christian identity adherents and members of Peter's church. So when Berg argued with them on the radio, it wasn't just entertainment. Moore and Peters took it very seriously, and they shared tapes of the argument they had with Berg with other members of the order. So that's how Alan Berg ended up on the order's hit list. Berg wasn't necessarily the most well-known person on the list, But he was the most accessible because they knew where he lived, he was easy to reach, and he was already reviled in the white supremacist community. Matthews also saw Berg's assassination as almost a practice run. Through Berg's assassination, they could get the experience they felt they needed to go after higher-profile targets. Some of the members of the order were uncomfortable about assassinating Berg. A number of the members felt that the group wasn't ready yet. They needed more money and a base first but Bob overruled them. So, a hit team made of order members Gene Craig, David Lane, Richard Scutari, and Bruce Pierce was dispatched to Denver. Gene Craig was Bob Matthews' mother-in-law. She was in charge of surveilling Berg. She learned that he had three cars, a Bricklin, a DeLorean, and the black Volkswagen Beetle, which was his primary vehicle. She took photos of his job, his house, coming in and out of the restaurants he loved, Euro's Place and The White Spot. She even went so far as to pose as a journalist, collecting promo material from the radio station where he worked. She brought this dossier back to Matthews, who was impressed with her work. Matthews decided the assassination would take place on Monday, June 18, 1984. When Allenberg pulled his Beetle into the driveway on Adams Street at 9.21 p.m. after dropping Judith off at her car, Bob Matthews, David Lane, and Bruce Pierce were parked just up the street in a Plymouth sedan. As Berg pulled in, Lane pulled up behind Berg and stopped the car. Matthews got out and opened the rear door for Pierce. As Berg stepped out of the Beetle, Pierce let loose with a Mac-10, spraying 12 bullets at Berg's head and dropping him to the ground. The MAC-10 jammed on the 13th round, and Pierce jumped back into the car. The three members of the order drove off towards Colorado Boulevard. So we know how Berg got on their radar, and we know who was involved with his death. But how is this supposed to spark the white revolution? Here's Kevin Flynn. There were elements in the group that believed it was necessary to do something that would gain so much attention that people kindred spirits who didn't know that there was a group forming, that they would come to understand it, that we need to let all of our cohort out there know that there is a group. 
operating, and they'll know when they pick up the paper and see Jewish radio talk show host assassinated in Denver, they'll know that somebody's out there, and they'll be hearing from us soon. Instead of laying low, Matthews realized the group needed more money. He reached out to a contact he had at Brinks to set up a job. They decided to knock over a Brinks truck near Ukiah, California, on July 19th, just a month after killing Allenberg. After learning the truck's route, Matthews and other members of the order staked out a spot to wait for the truck. As the truck drove past on U.S. Highway 101, the men pulled out behind it in two Ford pickup trucks. The armored truck turned onto California 20 and slowed as it hit a steep hill. That was when Matthews and his men decided to overtake the truck. One of the pickups pulled out in front of the armored truck and slammed on the brakes. The armored vehicle was forced to stop with other pickup right behind it, effectively blocking the armored truck in. One of Matthews' men held a sign that read, get out or die. Matthews jumped out and ran up to the guards, yelling for them to get out of the truck. When the guards didn't immediately respond, Bruce Pierce stood up in the back of one of the pickups and started shooting. The guards stumbled out and abandoned the truck. Matthews and his men surrounded the vehicle. They opened the back of the truck, and as they're throwing the money bags out into the other pickup truck, uh, Bob Matthews sticks Andy Barnhill's pistol in his waistband. And as they're bending over and lifting up the bags of money, the gun worked its way out of his pants and it dropped to the floor of the truck, and Bob never noticed it. So when the FBI shows up and they start securing the crime scene there off the side of the highway, in uh, just north of Ukiah, California, uh, they found the gun. And they said to the Brinks guards, is this your gun? No, it's not mine, not mine. Oh, okay. And one guy says, that looks like the one that the ringleader pointed in my face. After the robbery, Matthews and his men drove to the campsite they had set up ahead of time. Rather than try to get quickly as far away from the area as possible, they had set up a bivouac in the woods nearby because they felt it was safer to hide in place for three, four days until everything died down at the location of the robbery. Uh, it was an uphill grade on a highway just near, uh, near Ukiah, California. And so they established a, a camp nearby in the woods, and that's where they stayed. And during the time they were there, of course, they're regaling each other with you know, hey, remember this, remember that. And Matthews was recounting the, uh, uh, how they brought the truck to a stop. And Matthews uh, reached into his waistband where he pulled his gun out. And when he reached there, he says, oh my God, my gun, it's, it's gone. I can't find it. And it turns out they left it on the floor of the, the Brinks truck. So at this point, Matthews and his gang are sitting around a campfire counting their cash slowly realizing that they have stolen more money in one robbery than all of their previous efforts combined. $3.8 million. They've killed Allen Berg, and as far as they know, they've gotten away with it. The money they just stole will go a long way toward realizing their goal of preparing and arming other separatist groups, as well as funding more assassinations and bombings. In their minds, they are well on their way toward the goal of overthrowing the government. So, given the fact that the states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho are still firmly part of the United States of America and not part of the white American bastion, we know their plan didn't succeed. So how did it all end? 
That's next time on The Order of Death. The Order of Death is produced by Josh Madison and Shannon Geis and is edited by Josh Madison. Our theme song is by Matthew Simonson, and we had additional music from Kevin Richards, Lee Rosevear, and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to the History Colorado Center for helping us find and use the Alan Berg recordings heard in our first episode and in this one as well. We'll have links to all of this in the show notes. 